Rob Cartledge of robcartledgeministries.com. Titus 2.1 says, You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Multitudes of professed Christians around the globe are perplexed when it comes to doctrine and clearly articulating their faith. Because of this lack of understanding, many Christians are believing the most absurd and heretical beliefs. And due to this, we have seen an incredible increase of cultish views even inside of mainstream churches. This series, Critical Doctrine, is to confront this dilemma with clear and precise teaching on the basic foundational doctrines of our faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the word that you gave me to prepare for yesterday, Lord, and the words that have, have come and the and already that it's spoken to me quite a bit. And I just pray that I can somehow impart that to everyone here today by your mighty power. I pray that your uh, spirit will be here now to open all our minds and our hearts to receive what, what you are saying to us through this word. And I pray that you anoint me to deliver it adequately, Lord, and that I won't say anything that you haven't uh, prepared for me to say um, from the beginning of time, Lord, when you foresaw everything that would take place on this earth. So I pray that this message will really have an impact on all of us, as well as everyone who will be viewing it on YouTube, and that we'll, we'll see some fruit from this. So I pray you direct us now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So this is our sixth part to Christology, and uh, it was going to be the last part, but I couldn't get the sections that I wanted all done in one sermon. So there's going to be a seventh part as well to complete Christology. Christology is part of the series of critical doctrine. One of the scriptures that we use that uh, urged me to start doing this series is 1 Timothy 4.16. And it says, watch your life and doctrine closely. And so, so that means we've got to watch it closely. We've got to be very careful that we're living under correct doctrine and that we're believing correct doctrine. It says that we are to persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. So correct doctrine will save us. Incorrect doctrine won't save us. Meaning if you're believing that Jesus isn't the Son of God and that he didn't die on the cross for your sins and that he isn't in heaven and he isn't alive now, you won't be saved by that faith. Correct doctrine saves us. Now there are points of dispute in doctrine which... Either way, won't affect your salvation. But fundamental doctrines of the faith are critical for us to understand and get right so that we are saved by believing in the correct doctrine. Does that make sense? Yes. So pure doctrine saves us. We don't get into heaven when we don't believe the fundamental doctrines of the faith. Someone once said, Doctrine is necessary to inform us how we may be saved by Christ, but it is Christ who does the saving. So it informs us of how, but it's Christ that does the actual work of saving us. S. Lee Hamoki wisely informs us, doctrine is the foundation for the Christian life. Everything about the execution of living a life pleasing to the Lord is built upon doctrine. We can't have right living without right doctrine. That's how important doctrine is. You cannot expect to live a pure Christian life if you're living under false doctrine. J.C. Ryle asserts that we should no more tolerate false doctrine than we should tolerate sin. It's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? I thought that was quite, quite profound. So this is Christology, that we've, the parts that we've studied so far. The deity of Christ, humanity of Christ, union, the union of deity and humanity. 
the kenosis of Christ, the impeccability, the earthly life, and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. That's what we've looked at so far. Today we're doing the present ministry of Christ. I'm saving the future ministry of Christ for the last sermon in this series, which is going to be a pa- yeah, for the future. Yeah. But it is a powerful message, the future ministry of Christ, because we're going to be talking about the second coming and, and things, all the implications to that. Charles Ryrie relates that the present ministry of Christ is chiefly related to his people, in contrast to the present work of the Spirit, which includes ministries to unbelievers. So the present ministry of Christ and what Christ is doing in heaven now is related to his people, those that believe in him. doesn't mean he doesn't have concern for unbelievers of the world. He's done everything that he needs to do to atone for them. But that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Spirit does. And that's why we need to pray so the Holy Spirit can work in unbelievers. But the present work of Jesus is in relation to his people. The predominant ministry of Christ when he lived on earth was to his personal disciples. Did you notice that? That it's always him talking to his disciples. He did talk to the larger community, but he generally spent the bulk of the time is him talking to his disciples preparing them for worldwide ministry. And likewise, his continual concern in heaven is for his true disciples. However, the Holy Spirit was given to empower the church to make disciples a nation. So that's what the Holy Spirit was given to us for, so that we can go out there and be effective and make disciples of the, of the nations. His, one of his ministries is he's currently interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for us. That's what he does. He's up there praying for us. He's up there encouraging us in the spirit and lifting us up to God and saying, God, bless these people. Help them to be more effective. The continual prayers, because that's what he said, he always lives. That means he's in continuous prayer for his people. The continual prayers of Christ for his people ensure that we are saved completely. This is the truth behind the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer. And that's the element of the eternal security that we've got to know that Christ is on our side. He's praying for us. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to continue on in the faith and not let go of the faith. He wants us to live eternally in heaven, not in hell. We stay saved, and this is a profound statement i I felt the Holy Spirit lead me to say, he, we stay saved in Christ provided we stay saved. Think about that. We stay saved in Christ provided we stay saved. In the sense that we do not turn our backs on Christ and reject him as Lord and Saviour. If you don't reject Jesus, you're going to be saved. But it's when you reject Jesus that you, you lose your salvation. And this is where the once saved, always saved theory, I call it a theory because I can't accept it as a doctrine, is not in line with Scripture. And there's plenty of Scriptures I'm going to bring up later on, so if you don't agree with me, anyone on YouTube doesn't agree with me on that I don't accept the once saved, always saved doctrine that they teach, there's information on this later that I'm going to be giving in the sermon, which will help you to understand it better. But John 17, 15 to 17, and this is that he's, he's interceding for us. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. This is Jesus praying for for those that would believe in him. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. And your word is truth. And the word sanctify comes from the 
uh, weak. I didn't mean that, Bill. The Greek word agioza, and that means set apart for its sacred use or to make holy. So when you're sanctified, you are made holy in Christ. So his prayer is that we be sanctified so that we overcome the evil one and don't sin. And we overcome the evil one by being sanctified. A lot of people will pray, pray that I can overcome the evil one. Well, then don't sin. (laughs) Sanctify yourself in the Lord, and that's how you overcome the evil one. So how do we be sanctified? This is the step towards sanctification. It comes through this, 1 John 1, 8 to 9. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If anyone claims to be without sin, they are deceived because everyone has sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, that purifying from all unrighteousness, that's being sanctified. That's being made holy. So how do we get holy? By repentance. So it is repentance that makes us holy. It is not doing of right acts. A lot, Most world religions, most all world religions will say you do right acts to be holy. If you do good things, you're going to be made holy. That's not the way in Christianity. You get sanctified through repentance and you do right acts as a result. Of being sanctified. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's a reverse on the way the common religious person thinks. And even many Christians think you get holy by doing right things. But you don't get holy by doing right things. If anything, you get a big ego from doing right things. You think you're too good. He's also defending us. That's one of his ministries currently. 1 John 2 1 says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the righteous one. Isn't that good to know? So when you sin, you come to the come to Jesus, you ask him for forgiveness, he then goes to the Father on your behalf and pleads your case. Basically says the Father, He's asked me to forgive him. I've got to forgive him. I died so that he has that opportunity. You know, he has the privilege of being able to ask me to forgive him and I have to forgive him. So we've got to know that when we've sinned and we've come to him and asked for forgiveness, we've got to know we've been forgiven. We can't carry on as if we haven't been forgiven and and carry that burden. Mm -hmm. So this is why we repent. For as we repent, which means to ask forgiveness and turn away from sin, turn our backs on sin, Christ speaks to his Father on our behalf. He is our advocate before the Father and defends us by pointing to the cross, which is what I was just saying before. 1 John 2.2 says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So his atoning sacrifice covers the sins of the whole world. And we've got to remember that. So everyone can be saved. And it also says that he is the one who turns aside God's wrath. This same verse can be translated, he is the one who turns aside God's wrath, taking away our sins. When we go to Jesus and ask him to forgive us for our sins, he turns aside God's wrath. So God will now not pour out his wrath on you, meaning you don't go to hell as a result of your sin. It's good to know, isn't it? Yeah. Good good to know a way to get God's wrath off you. For God's wrath 
was poured out on Christ and he was our substitution. Our propitiation. Propitiation means he appeased and satisfied God. When he was on the cross, he did everything that was needed to appease a holy God. He's our redeemer. He redeemed us. He's our reconciler. He reconciled us to the Father. Therefore, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us as we repent. So as soon as we repent, as we repent, the righteousness that is Christ and Christ alone is imputed to us, is given to us as if we're just as holy as Jesus now. Uh, by a simple act of repentance. But when I say simple, it means turning away from all those things that causes us to sin. We've got to keep turning away. So our heart has got to be not to do them. Even though Paul says, you know, the things I want to do, I don't do, but the things I don't want to do, I do. But he said that to um, sort of identify, I suppose, with human nature. And then we can understand from that statement that he still made mistakes. He still sinned. And therefore, he still lived in daily repentance. And that's why Paul said, I die daily. He, he, he used the, the dying daily term to mean I repent in the morning and I die to my sin nature that day in every way he possibly could. So just as when we turn on the tap and then we get water to have a shower, when we turn on the tap of repentance, we are sprinkled with his blood and made clean before him. So if you want to have a shower, you don't stand in the shower and just stand under the, the faucet, do you? You have to actually turn it on. And the same way, if you want to get clean before God, you've got to get in the shower of, of God and repent, which is the equivalent of turning on that tap. And then you get clean. He's also got a ministry of building many rooms. According to the Word of God, Jesus has a current mansion building ministry. <laughs> it's in the Bible. In the King James, they, instead of saying many rooms, it says many mansions. I think it's King James that says that. John 14, 1-3 says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Isn't that wonderful? The heavenly accounts of uh, pe people that have gone on before us, or even just gone and, and then come back to life again, and have come to tell us what happened in, when they experienced heaven. And by the way, Christianity is one of the only faiths on earth that has had has got thousands, if not tens of thousands, of accounts of people who have seen heaven and come back and revealed the truth of what's going on up there to the church. And uh, most people have said, that I've heard about anyway, have said that they've seen the house or the mansion that God has built for them. The most beautiful places you've ever seen. The best building in the world would not compare with the least of the buildings in heaven because they're made by the Lord. And everything the Lord makes is living in heaven. So everything in, in heaven, even the house, is living. It's a living entity. <laughs> can't wait to get to heaven to see my my mansion so it's going to be it's going to be good god's got a mansion waiting for every true believer so hold the course because you don't want to miss out on that if you ever want to have a beautiful house don't worry about having it in this life wait until the next one he knows when we are leaving this planet and he is currently making sure that there is a dwelling waiting for us to live in when we get there when we get there it's waiting for us that's just one of the benefits of heaven not that we're going to be home much because <laughs> we're always going to be out and about I'm always at Joe Schimmel's house yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's 
<laughs> he'll be sitting on his doorstep waiting for him, Willie, to get home. <laughs> Johnny will be at Ravi's house. <laughs> I hope he doesn't lose that accent when he gets to heaven, Ravi Zacharias. I love his accent. Or whatever that accent. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, that wasn't a very good accent, though. Can I, can I ask you a question? Yeah. I don't know whether you, I don't know if I've asked you this before. Sorry to get away. You know, in heaven, you know how your name is uh, in the book of life. In the book of life, is it the same name, Robert Robert Cartledge? Do you think? Yeah, or well, yeah, I'm sure it would be, um, unless he gives me a pet name or something. The illustrious no, one. <laughs> <laughs> it would be the same name. <laughs> the illustrious one. Oh, I think so. Yeah. No. Well, uh, unless it's in a situation like um, Jesus. Oh. Changed the name from Simon to Peter. Robert what? Oh. Well, Christ isn't actually Jesus' surname. That's his title. Matthew sixteen eighteen, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He's currently building his church, so he's not just building your mansions in heaven. He's not just praying for you continually, but he's building his church on earth. He is now building his church, and like living stones, we are being built into his church. So 1 Peter 2, 4-5 says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we're living stones being built into this house. And so what he's doing when he's building the church, he's building us. He's building the blocks that are going to go into the church building and make the church strong. And he also gives ministries to the body of Christ. Ephesians four eleven to 13 says, It was he who gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So he's given us ministries of, of prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And the purpose of those ministries is to build up the people of God. And so in that sense, he uses those ministries or those ministers to build the blocks which he is going to place into the building or has placed into the building. So he's making them stronger and more effective so that the body of Christ may become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. These ministries, along with the nine gifts discussed in 1 Corinthians 12, 7-11, which was last week's sermon. So those gifts were given to the church from Christ to build up the church. They're meant to be to build up the church. That's what he also does. So Christ indwells in us now. And this is an interesting point I want to bring up. In Galatians 2.20, says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Not only does the Holy Spirit indwell in us, but Christ dwells in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. The word is clear that Jesus is one with the Holy Spirit, but he himself is not the Holy Spirit. A lot of people say Christ lives in us by the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit and Jesus are one. However, Christ is distinct from the Holy Spirit. So this, this word has more depth, and that's why we've got to look at this.
So when the Word of God tells us that Christ lives in us, we must believe that he himself is in us. But normally there would be more than one reference to it in the Bible, if that's so. It wouldn't be just one scripture. So let's look at Colossians 1.27. To them God was chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. John 14, 15 to 17 says, If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Here the Holy Spirit is referred to as another counsellor. Then there must be one already, mustn't there? If, there's an, if the Holy Spirit is another counsellor, there must be already a counsellor. And I believe Christ is referring to himself as the counsellor that's already here. In us. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, so who's considered that before? It's always been the Holy Spirit in us, hasn't it? But Christ in us, the hope of glory, that He dwells within us. It's something to think about. It can there's there's probably a lot of doctrinal corrections that can be made having that in our understanding. And I'm, I'm looking at uh, going deeper into that and finding out the full implications of what that means because I think it can bring, you know, a revelation of this magnitude can sort of bring a, uh, some needed corrections and probably effectiveness to the church. He answers prayer. Christ is actively listening to our petitions and honouring our prayers. So he's busy up there, isn't he? He's not up there just you know, sitting on a cloud. He is busy. He's doing a lot of stuff. He's interceding for us continually. He's answering prayer. He's building mansions. He's building the church. He's giving gifts to the church. He's building up ministers, building up all his people so that they, they can be effective in the, in the church. And he also is answering our prayers, actively listening to our petitions and honouring our prayers. So let's take a look at the specifications laid down in Scripture in relation to these prayers. John 15, 7 says, If you remain in me and my word remains in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Now the key word here is if. If you remain in me and my word remains in you, my word being the word of God remains in you, you will ask whatever you wish. So if we want to be effective in prayer, if we want to know that anything we ask shall be done for us, just as we've asked it, we must remain in him, and his word must abide, which is another translation's word for, for the same, that my word abides in you, not just remains, but abides, lives in you. James 1, 6 to 8 also says, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all he does. So if we doubt, we won't receive what we ask for in prayer. Also, Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So we've got to believe. So we've got to not doubt, but we've also got to believe that it's possible. And his word's got to abide in us. And also we've got to be persistent, haven't we? Like the persistent widow in... Luke uh, 18, 1 to 8, that parable teaches us a lesson about persistent prayer before God. We've got to bug him and bug him and bug him and bug him until he just says, okay, here it is. You've been persistent. You, you now deserve to get the answer to your prayer. So we've got to be persistent in our prayers. In John 15, 1 to 16, Jesus encourages believers to remain in him and that our fruitfulness in ministry is dependent upon our remaining in him. Okay, 
However, he goes on so far as to say this in John 15, 6. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burnt. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burnt. This scripture speaks of someone who once was in Christ because he wouldn't have used the term remain if you remain in me if, if he hadn't already been remaining in him or if he hadn't already been in him. He wouldn't have used the term, that term at all. So for how could this person be encouraged to remain in Christ if he never was in Christ in the first place? Does that make sense? So what's that telling us? The result of not remaining in Christ and turning away from him is eternal punishment in hell. So this word is saying, it's telling us very clearly. Hebrews 6, 4-6 says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. It's impossible to bring them back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So this verse is crystal clear that some people who have been enlightened they know the truth. They've been gifted from above. They've had the Holy Spirit like you and I have. They've, they've tasted of the word, the truth of God's word. If they fall away, it's impossible for them to be brought back to repentance. Where's once saved, always saved philosophy or theory in all that? If that person had tasted of all this, had received the Holy Spirit, had been under the, the ministry, had lived for God for a time, it's impossible if they fall away and they reject Jesus and they curse Jesus and they walk away from him, they are not saved any longer, but they were saved before. And this is the frustrating thing about once saved, always saved, is they're teaching people that you just put your hand up, accept Jesus into your life, that's it, you're saved. Go and enjoy life, mate. Not really, you know, directly like that, but that's pretty well it. I've heard one pastor say from the pulpit, there is nothing that you can do that will cause you to lose your salvation. I'm thinking, I can think of ten things. <laughs> One is simply to curse Jesus and walk away from him for the rest of your life. And you will not be saved, guaranteed. And you, it even says you can't be saved again. Well, I always remember, because it says impossible, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Because Jesus says, you know, it's difficult for the man to get, a uh, rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven as it is for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. And then, then they said, well, who will be saved? And he says, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Mm-hmm. Meaning he can break that rich man down to the point where he could get, get him through a needle in a sense of repent, in repentance, that level of brokenness needed and required. I think that scriptures there is a, a deep, deep warning for people who are really taking their faith lightly and not walking in Christ properly. They're not living properly in God. And if you go back onto this last page where it says, you know, if anyone does not remain in me, so he's talking about someone who's in Christ but don't remain in him, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers and such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. That's the essence of it. 
Where's once saved, always saved in that scripture? It's not there. That's why I've never believed it. I've never been able to accept or swallow once saved, always saved because I've never seen it in scripture and they've never backed themselves up with adequate scriptures because they always, they get scriptures out of context. You know, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, they'll say. Yeah, okay, let's read the other half of that scripture. For those who live according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. But if you live according to your flesh, there is condemnation in Christ Jesus. You don't just preach one half of the scripture and leave the other half out because then you're deceiving the people into believing that you cannot be condemned once you're in Christ. Well, if you're in Christ, yeah, you can't be condemned. But if you walk away from Christ or live in the flesh and don't, don't follow through with your faith till the end, you don't run the course and get to the finish line, you will not be saved if you don't live for Christ all the way. Simple. And... So the conclusion of the matter, Christ lives to intercede for us and help us to get across the finish line without losing our salvation. He lives to intercede for us. But we've also got to live in him. We've got to remain in him so that his prayers can be effective if we walk away from him. So the responsibility lies as much with us as it does with him. But our responsibility is to the point of we have got to keep resubmitting ourselves through repentance and stay committed, stay devoted. It's very important. And uh, it's probably the least taught of all the the, uh, doctrines of the faith, but it's one that really must be taught. We've got to have it crystal clear in our minds because it's this that gives us the fear of the God. So that's one of the dilemmas of the Christian movement today is they don't fear God because they think God is just a God of love. And therefore, why fear someone that you love? They've got this whole thing twisted in their mind. But um, Joe Shimmel gives us a really good example of what the fear of the Lord is. And he says, when you go to Niagara Falls and you see the power of the Niagara Falls and it's the most beautiful, most spectacular thing you've ever seen, but you don't want to get on the wrong side of the falls. In a sense, you don't want to get over that fence and fall down with the falls because if you get on that side, it's no longer glorious and spectacular. Now it's got a severe wrath that will destroy you. The wrath of the falls. So you stay on the right side of the fence, you stay on the right side of the falls with the respect, admiration, but there's also that fear that look at the power of that thing because it can destroy me if I get on the wrong side of it. And that's the same with God. You can you look at God, we'll be looking at God and praising him and giving him glory, but we'll also be able to see his power And the fear that will be upon us will be like, whoa, I don't want to get on the wrong side of my God. Look at the power coming out from him. He is awesome. He created all matter in the universe and all the energy sources in the universe. He created that. And he's got a power far greater than all of that power combined. So stay on the right side of him. and then So that's where the fear of the Lord is healthy, isn't it? Hmm. So contrary to once saved, always saved doctrine, there are too many scriptures that speak to the contrary, and that's just a few of them. I've found them. I've got an actual list of scriptures that I've been keeping of as I'm reading through the Bible. I'm keeping scriptures that relate to that, and um, I've found quite a few. I might even present a sermon one day. And I'm, I'm thinking of saving it for our study of soteriology, which is the study of salvation, which is in our doctrinal series. It's coming up in a sec. You'll see that. When we confess faith in Christ and believe in our hearts that Christ is Lord, we are saved. That's our memory verse at the moment. If, we, if though, we hold on to the faith and do not recant of his name. 
if we hold on to the faith and don't recount of his name. It's so easy. Christians, it's, it's a regular occurrence these days. They say, you know, for every one person that comes in the front door, two are going out the back door. There's a dreadful move in the West. It's actually the opposite in the, the third world countries at the moment. There's an increase. There's a huge revival of Christianity happening in the third world countries. Yet in the West, like America and Australia and Canada and places like that, which have been known for their Christianity, there's a massive decline in, in churches, church attendance, belief in Christ is on the low, and there's a rise in atheism all over the planet, especially in, the, in, the, in those countries. When we confess faith in Christ and believe in our hearts that Christ is Lord, we are saved if we hold on to the faith and do not recant of his name. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 3, 6 says, But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and hope of which we boast. We are the house of God if we hold on to our courage and hope in Christ. So that word if means that if we don't, we are not his house. If we do, we are his house. That's why I said in the beginning that you are saved if you stay saved. You've got to stay saved to be saved. In the, the material word, it's the same thing. You know, if you're, if the ship sinks, you fall into the water and you're swimming and if someone comes up and pulls you into a boat, a lifeboat, you don't jump out of the lifeboat, do you? You're saved as long as you stay saved. If you jump out of the lifeboat back into the sea, you're going to drown. But if you stay in the lifeboat, you are saved. And we're in the lifeboat. This is a life raft right here. We stay in it. Not meaning you have to stay in this church. You can go where you like, but I'd love you all to stay. Please don't leave. <laughs> but um, we're saved as long as we stay in Christ. Amen. And I just want to ask you that, you know, if you feel that you've been slipping of late, you know, slipping in your faith, not holding firmly to the faith, I just want to pray with you now if anyone feels that way, if you feel like you've not been pressing in as you should, if you feel like it's a struggle to be Christian, it's a struggle to stay interested, if you find coming to church a struggle, if you find reading the Bible a struggle, I just want to pray that God will just make things easier for you in that area. You know, so if you if you feel that way, just lift up your hand. If you feel that you really need to press into God and you haven't been as much as you'd like to. Okay, I'm going to pray for you guys as soon as I finish this. But um, next week we're going to do, or not next week, probably the next uh, time we do the critical doctrine, we're going to do the future ministry of Christ. And that's going to be interesting because it's um, got some incredible prophetic scriptures that I'm going to be uh, drawing on and hopefully help us to really understand what's going on there. Now, the Critical Doctrine series, we've studied Christology, and we've got one sermon left in it. We're going to go on to theology proper, which is the attributes of God, and that's a really interesting one. I'm really looking forward to getting into that one. Uh, There's also other ones like pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit and and so on. There's angelology, which is the studies of angels, both fallen and unfallen. Included in that is going to be the study of Nephilim, Who's interested in the Nephilim? <laughs> no one. No one. It is a fascinating study. The Nephilim were in the book of Genesis, but they're also spoken of uh, as being in the land, uh, the promised land, when Joshua was moving in to take the promised land. They were, they were around again. And there's evidence in uh, certain prophetic scriptures, uh, especially what, what Jesus had spoken in Matthew 24 and others, I think, 
where Jesus is talking about that as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So in the days of Noah, there were Nephilim on the planet. So maybe we're going to see a rise in uh, very tall people. <laughs> very mixed up. And very mixed up and crazy uh, crazy people, heroes of old, men of renown. So we'll be looking at that. There's also the soteriology, which I was talking about, which will be in relation to this, uh, the study of salvation. Um, and we're gonna, uh, I'm going to stand in distinct contrast to the once saved, always saved teaching. Uh, and another interesting one there, or there's two there, eschatology is an interesting one, study of end times. We'll be talking about the Nephilim. <laughs> yeah, we'll be talking about them too. And also Israelology, which will be the study of Israel. And uh, not many people have, or ministers have actually done a complete study on it, on Israelology from Scripture, so that should be good. So there's about 10 years worth of teaching there, because we only do it once every month. So. Greekology. We'll do Greekology as well. If you put ology on the end of something, it's Greek. <laughs>